1: I'm Craig Savillo, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Caius Torrey about his excellent new book, Empire of Law, Nazi Germany, Exile Scholars, and the Battle for the Future of Europe. Caius, hello and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you this morning. Um, so, Caius, we like to always begin these interviews by having the author tell us a little bit about themselves.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh... Gladly. So I am a professor in Helsinki, Finland. So northern Europe, and I'm a professor in uh, European intellectual history, and my main field is legal history. And I've been uh, working on different law and history or legal history-related right fields now for close to twenty years, and my interests are usually in the unexpected. So I'm mostly my books can be uh, described as looking behind the normal narrative, behind the usual explanation and trying to find what lies beneath those.
1: So you told me off air that this this new book was your fourth book. Um, and uh, so tell us a little bit about how you, you came to this book. Um, was it something that you had thought about working on for a while? Did it? Did it come to you through the process of writing your other books? Um, you know, Was it a sort of a lifelong interest? Um, and then you say, okay, it's time to finally write this book. Uh, what, what's the origin story of this book?
0: So the, the origin story is actually New York. So I defended my thesis in Helsinki uh, on a topic related to uh, Roman law then went to New York for a postdoc at NYU, so New York University. And while there, I suddenly realized that there are all these exiles, all these exile scholars being referenced, all these that uh, stories or narratives that uh, this field or this department was founded by, and then comes a German name or Italian name or Spanish name, uh, who emigrated from... Europe in 1933 or 35 or, or the like. And it just cropped up during the, those times. And suddenly I was beginning to be interested in what kind of impact those people had while they came from a completely different kind of academic surrounding, they came from a different kind of culture, different kind of language background, and suddenly our Plunged into this uh, new environment, and what they do there is quite often quite unusual. And I had the good fortune of you know, talking about this idea while in New York. So, my, my host at NYU was uh, Professor Bill Nelson, uh, who helped me a lot with uh, so our discussions on this topic I was working on uh, at that point in legal realism. The History of Legal Realism and Anthropology, and then uh, talked with uh, Jim Whitman from Yale. And also I had the, the good luck of bumping into uh, Samuel Moyne, uh, The History of Human Rights, be, uh, actually before his book came out, uh, the last Utopia book came out, and uh, with them on discussions with them, I sort of like realized there is an other side of this story that there's basically a a need for the story of looking at how the exile experience had not only the the beginning and the end, as in beginning in the in Europe and the end in the U.S. or the the United Kingdom, but also a third chapter, i.e., the the uh, how they they had an influence. Again, back home in Europe, so that there's a kind of transatlantic shift going on the whole time from the 1930s, but actually quite often beginning already quite a lot before that. Uh, so it is very much the, the, uh, the, the whole discussion is a, uh, uh, it's a 20th century history very much. Then I managed to get a, a grant for that. So I got a five-year grant from the European Research Council, and then uh, one final uh, influence is, of course, that when I was finishing the book, I went—I uh, had some some uh, travel grant left, so I, I went to uh, UCLA, uh, where I was, uh, hosted by Anthony Pagden, and then I get got from there a very kind of different approach. Uh, into this kind of exile experience, because there's a very much difference between the East Coast and the West Coast emigres or refugees, and how their uh, example with the so-called uh, country of origin and the the uh, the, the local surroundings, uh, they differed quite a lot.
1: Um, and and I definitely want to talk about the exile, the exile experience, um, in a little bit. But let's let's start. By having you tell us, what are the main research questions you're trying to address in this book? Um, you gave a nice little background uh, of its origins. So now, now, what is the the uh, the main argument of the book? So the um,
0: the the tenet of European integration, the idea that we have a European Union, that there is a shared uh, common roots of Europe, and that is also not only the the past, but also the future of Europe, it very much uh, derives from this idea that uh, there is a shared tradition of law. So that shared tradition encompasses things like rule of law, liberty, and justice. And the fundamental question of this book is that what is the origin of this tradition? Uh, it emerges in popular uh, discussions in the 1950s, but when you start digging, and I started digging, that there are all these uh, very strange roots pointing to both former Nazis and these exiles. And that was, for me at least, the, the fundamental question, is that how is this tradition coming through? And how is it that it emerges, and what makes it, uh, become this fundamental credo of European uh, political integration.
1: Yeah, I, I think now is probably a good time to discuss um, what you what you mean by um, exile, uh, exile scholars. Um, why why is this an important concept for your work? I mean, I'm sure everybody's familiar that the, the word exile means to be me <laughs> cast out of your your country, but um, there's there's more of an academic. Um, meaning to it. Um, and it's, it's, it's super critical for your book, so um, if you could spend some time explaining that to us, um, I think that would be really helpful.
0: Uh, yes, certainly. Now, the fundament of my book in this respect is the, the concept of exile as a kind of knowledge production. Exiles, when you are kicked out of your country, or you decide that you have to leave, because of the safety of yourself and your family. Uh, in recent studies, exile is not simply that of leaving. Exile process begins much earlier. It begins from the earliest sense that you, that, for example, the beginnings of repression and the beginnings of uh, marginalization. And so the exile process only culminates in the physical transition. And there's now, of course, with all this refugee crisis, there's a huge discussion going on regarding exile and refugees. And we had, with my research project, we got organized conferences in which we've been uh, comparing this kind of historical exiles and the kind of exile scholars of today and comparing so what makes this exile, uh, the 1930s, 1940s, uh, exile as also a transfer of know-how, what makes it different and what makes it unique and what are the similarities to others? And I think for the, uh, the exile process as significant in the uh, significant in the, the, the way that people work, there is a huge question there. And of course, one could say that in the works of artists, uh, it is quite natural to see this kind of marginalization, the kind of traumas that they are processed through that work. But then if you look at somebody the more, most famous of those exiles, for, such as Albert Einstein, who continued working in the US, and you cannot really say that his work has been uh, influenced by exile. Whereas in the case of uh these people who I've been working with since so much of the, the stuff that they are working on has to do with the very process of, for example, of belonging, of justice, the idea of uh, being a member of a community. That what I argue is that there is a kind of unconscious processing, not only of the hardship that they faced and the traumas and the, the loss of life, uh, but also that they are processing in that why that, w- that was lost in Europe was so important, why the rule of law, the, why the, the, the ideas of justice, equality, why they were important. And so uh, there is a kind of uh, tenacity in those exile experiences and but also huge variances, so the kind of seeking of connection, seeking of absorption, seeking of continuations. And of course, we know some of the exiles very well, so people like Hannah Arendt, who wrote about exile all the time and wrote about her own experiences. And then we have enormous groups of people who remain silent of this, their experiences. So that we have, for example, the the group of people who, uh, group of scholars who, uh, left Germany, and they were then by different NGOs were uh, relocated in universities throughout the U.S. and quite a lot of them ended up in the deep South in Jim Crow territory, and there's something like sixty of them, and the 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 weird part of that is that really none of them left any memoirs or anything in which they would have uh, processed this experience. So that some do process, some don't process at all. So this is one of those challenges in my my works that I'm trying to basically uh, dig out things that some people are more than willing to describe and more than willing to uh, put out loud or write down. And in some cases, some people are just, they don't write about it, they don't speak about it. It's only the, the uh, their children or pupils who actually then uh, offer any kind of sense of what their experience might have been. And that's of course a transmitted.
1: Uh, that leads me to my next question. How, um, first of all, who are the major figures you look at in your book? But I'm also very interested to know um, your methodology and how you chose them. Um, you mentioned in your previous answer that, you know, some people were willing to write it down and speak it out loud and some weren't. So I imagine that's a big part of how you were able to choose your, your figures. But um, I, I really am curious as, as to your methodology in that process.
0: So my book has five central characters and a lot of supporting characters. So uh, my central characters are five German speaking and uh, born German uh, legal scholars uh, and they come from different age groups so we have two of the the most senior ones are called Fritz Schultz and Fritz Springsheim, and those are the people who are what I describe as being the the unexpected roots of this tradition and they are people who are uh, forced out of office Already in the beginning of the the Nazi regime, and then try to hold out uh, in Germany, and then uh, quite late in 37-38 30, leave Germany, begin to leave Germany, first to Netherlands, and then then uh, to to Britain. Then I have uh, from the same age group, so people who were already when the Nazis came to power, who were at the top of their career as full professors, we have uh, Paul Koschaker, who was originally Austrian, and whose plans of having a marvelous, founding a marvelous new center of studies in uh, in Middle Eastern law, basically evaporated with the uh, Nazi takeover of power and the the loss of most of his collaborators, and also the uh, uh, rejection of his very own subject matter. And what happened with him is that he then turned towards the European tradition. And then we have the, 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 the so-called uh young, younger scholars, so people within the uh who were some 20 years younger, uh Franz Wiecker, who is the I would say, the most famous and most influential legal historian uh, of his generation in Europe. And also Helmut Koin, who was even younger, uh, some decade younger, uh, who was also a legal historian, but also very much wrote about Europe and the European tradition. And what these uh, three last-named characters, Koshoke, Viaker, Koin do in the story is that they are the ones who write uh, the European narrative, the idea of Europe as a concept within the, uh, the within legal history, and then popularize it, and it is through their work that it is uh, widely accepted. And because Franz Wiecker was very much involved with persons like Carl Schmidt. He was a uh, an enthusiastic member of the the uh, Nazi revolution, so the early years of the Nazi revolution. He was one of the so-called young lions of the Nazi legal academia. And for him, the question is that how he does this kind of uh, about-face after the war and how he re himself as a Democrat, and hides his Nazi past. And my methodology in this is really a uh, methodology of understanding. So so much of this kind of work within the Nazi past is about laying blame and pointing fingers that this person is a Nazi. What I would rather like to see is an understanding of the ideas and how those ideas are mutated, how they change, how they are transmitted. And so well, for us, I think the interesting point is to see the roots of this kind of certain idea of a European legal tradition, one that is very much a liberal tradition, a rule of law tradition, and how that those roots, that there are elements within the Nazi ideology from those from which those roots uh, emerged or parts of those roots emerged and that this kind of counter intuitiveness of this uh, is really what I find fascinating
1: um, let me ask a, a little bit of a follow-up of just more of a curiosity um, was there someone that you thought would appear in this book um, that didn't um simply because they just weren't as important as the others or there wasn't enough source material? Was there there someone right from the onset that you're like, oh, that really will fit into what I'm trying to say and then didn't?
0: Uh, I would say that, for example, uh, uh, some of the characters such as uh, Helmut Koeing, since he was a very influential uh, political and uh, legal figure, that there is extraordinarily little of his archives of the so that he has sort of uh, emptied his archives from this kind of all kinds of compromising materials and so he doesn't have a voice in the same manner as the others here have a yeah, voice he- that is immediate and uh, and direct but rather a voice that is tempered by the late Helmut koenig or that it later
1: held the coin in that sense. Yeah, yeah. It it it's. I just ask because it, I think one of the things I like to pull out on this show is is how historians and and legal scholars and literary scholars how they do their work and how they make their decisions on who makes it in, who doesn't. Um, um, so I thank you for that. Um, so let's let's start with um, with Fritz Schultz. Um, you mentioned him early on in your previous answer. Um, Tell us about his theory of law, uh, and basically what he's arguing for and against, um, and and why are his concepts so important for your overall narrative?
0: So Fritz Schultz was a scholar of Roman law, so he did what is described as legal dogmatics, so the interpretation of legal texts, very technical stuff, very I would say impossible to understand if you don't know the context of those discussions. And his previous career, so career prior to 1933, was a very successful one, but it was also purely a Germanic legal technical career. And 1933 34 comes a change when he realizes what is going to happen. And he is, what I would like to imagine is that he begins to process this. And of course, I don't really know that much of his own thoughts. I know from the memoirs of others that he was at some point uh, depressed. He had, basically he he was kicked out of his apartment uh, in Dahlem because it was, declared to be an Aryan-only area, and his salary evaporated and all that kind of thing. So that there is this kind of uh, line of uh, misery that comes through. But what he then comes up with was this book, The Principles of Roman Law, which is a completely novel, unusual, unprecedented so in, in this, he is basically defining a series of principles. Each of those principles are, is a principle that is a complete uh, opposition towards Nazi policies. So he talks about, in this as the fun, fundamental things, uh, talks about equality, liberty, independence of law, humanity. And there's 20 of these. And what he tries to outline here is that there is this kind of uh, self-sustaining tradition, a tradition that is beyond that of written law, a tradition that is jurisprudential, a tradition that is ongoing, and a tradition that really uh, does not need any uh, outside impulses. Of course, there is within this tradition that uh, there's kind of, you know, clear limitations from a contemporary point of view that he really did not see beyond uh, the world of upper-class men. He had uh, all kinds of prejudices and so forth, but still the main idea was that it is an argument of law against politics, argument of law against tyranny, interfering and perverting law. And it, this is, of course, something that, uh, in which when he uh, is writing during the Nazi years in Germany, is that he has to write that uh, between the lines. And that is something that really makes it uh, also partially like a guesswork, that you have to fill in what he is writing and what is then the meaning of that writing within that uh context. Because if you are living in a tyranny or living in repressive regimes, you of course can't write that uh, I am living in a repressive regime and these people are tyrants. You would be just immediately arrested, thrown into a concentration camp and nobody would hear of your book. So instead what you do is you write between the lines and then you use all these kind of things such as surrogate stages in which you can discuss matters. So it's basically a technique that is very common in European history. So whenever there is a censorship, uh, it is easier to talk about politics when you're talking about historical examples. If you're talking about classics or the Bible, you can say things that you couldn't say if you would be talking about our ruler right now who whose, you know, henchmen will, you know, behead you if they say you're writing something bad.
1: Um, and and so he you you mentioned he talks about um, Roman law, which I think is our next thing that we're gonna talk about. Um I'm give us a little bit of a of a primer on 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 what, what Roman law is, um, and and then I'm gonna ask about how it relates or how the the fascist state Sort of incorporated Roman law into their own sort of legal system, um, but but let, let's start with the concepts first, and then we'll we'll get specific.
0: So Nazi regime hated Roman law. So the Nazi Party program had the point nineteen. So the Nazi Party program from nineteen twenty, it had point nineteen, which demanded the abolition of Roman law and its replacement with. German national law. And why that point is there is a very good question. Uh, Some have pointed out that much of the party program was actually on a loan from a previous small uh, socialist party's program. And the, the reference there for Roman law is mostly about property law. But nevertheless, when the Nazis came to power, uh, they immediately began to uh, plan a new law reform, a law reform that would uh, develop a new kind of civil law, a law that would come from uh, the values of the German blood community and uh, supplant this uh, materialistic and also uh, Eastern Uh, Roman law tradition. And what then happened there is that they never actually got around doing that much with regard to uh, the Roman law tradition. They had more pressing concerns. There were uh, ideas of uh, promoting this new codification, but it never really went anywhere. I think it was more or less abandoned in nineteen forty-one when the uh when war was beginning to be a more pressing uh concern, and also that uh, the Nazi regime was began to be more like a totalitarian system in which law itself began to lose all meaning. However, the Italian fascist regime, on the other hand, uh loved Romans and Roman law. If you see pictures of Mussolini with Roman ruins and Roman statues, you can sort of see why there's a clear identification, and that also meant that the uh, the execution of the, the, the point 19 of the Nazi party program uh, began to lose uh, importance. And instead, what happened was that the uh, There was a fascist kind of Roman law tradition in which the Romans were seen as the original fascists. And from that, there was a creation of this kind of uh, acceptable Roman law tradition, uh, one that would uh, emphasize the kind of uh, community uh, of Romans uh, for Romans and so on. And the contrast point there is, of course, that these our lawyers uh, were very much arguing for jurisprudence, arguing for this long infinity of tradition and the rule of law. And, of course, if you think of, from the American perspective, talking about jurisprudence is uh, slightly unusual. So, because the American triangle of uh, the of law is so much heavily weighed on the uh, on the court. So if you have the actors in law as the courts, uh, the legislator, and jurisprudence. In America, it's very much centered on the court, especially the Supreme Court. Uh, in Europe, it's quite often centered on legislation. But when the legislation isn't uh, functioning as well, the focus is very much on jurisprudence. And so jurisprudence uh, has a very rich history of also law creation. And this idea of Roman law being the center of the legal universe comes from this tradition of uh, legal scholars creating law and creating legal rules without the help of the state or without the help of
1: legislation. Um, so now let's turn to the next, uh, section, um, sort of tell us about the, sort of the, the group of younger legal scholars that, um, come to age both during the Nazi regime and, and sort of in during the post-war period and follow up by telling us, um, how does the reemergence of traditional Roman law and the idea of a common European tradition, um, sort of relate to denazifying and rebuilding Europe?
0: Thank you. Uh, that's, a, <laughs> that's a very tough question, and very uh, you know the answer won't be short. I'm, I'm I'm afraid. When we are talking about people who come to age during the Nazi regime, so between 1933-45, there's quite a lot of talk about so-called war generation. So the people who are in their thirties when the Nazis come to power. Uh, are people who were children during the First World War. So they experienced the war, the war propaganda, the, they understood the losses, but they were too young to be sent to fight. And that is a continuity that can be seen throughout the, the uh, not only the Nazi regime, but also other, other regimes, uh, far-right movements, is that these are the core people in that regime. And, for example, Franz Wiecker, uh, he grew up in this uh, uh, family of, basically, judges, uh, reserve officers. So everybody was not only a magistrate, but also an officer. And it is a very, very militaristic tradition, even within within the, the Weimar years. And for them, the, the Weimar years is basically a mayhem, a chaos that goes on and on and on. And then when the Nazis come to power, for them, it appears as if there's finally there is uh, a movement that is positive, that brings a new light and a new development. So that it is very much uh, the Nazi, the early years of the Nazis, regime. it is a revolution. And this revolution brings enormous opportunities. And also there is a kind of idea of community being created. So the the Nazis were very good in creating this kind of uh, togetherness. For young graduates of law schools, they were organized these camps in which you had marches and, you know, uh, discussions around the bonfire and all these kind of things and so for someone like Franz Wiecker, that's where his you know friends came from that is this like in-group uh that was formed during those camps and during this kind of that they there's a group of young scholars who had the idea of reforming law and reforming Germany and there is a kind of when you look at the, the writings in the early early 30s, that there is this huge optimism, huge sense of purpose. And of course, this is something that we as you know later observers, we realize that where it is going. We know we look at that through the, the lens of the Holocaust. But they, of course, for them, it is something that they, they lived through, that is what their their formative experience. And one has to understand that what happens during the, the purges of Nazis, uh, one third of professors in Germany are fired. And when you have young scholars or young doctoral students now, if they wish something, that is that people would retire and get out of the way and they could you know, be hired. And that's what happened there. They... Not only did they have the sense of purpose, they only were given jobs. They got professorships while they were very young. They got uh, a sense of that they are being valued, and so that it is the the kind of creation story of then what uh, in in the nineteen forties when Max Weinreich talks about Hitler's professors, uh, talks about the continuity and consolidation of this group. Of we are talking about a huge section of the German professoriate, which were basically gone through this uh, idea of uh, uh, community building exercise. And what then happens is that this community building exercise is at some point goes horribly wrong. So that, of course, they are the people who get uh, the benefits, but also the people who suddenly realize that uh, many of their friends are dying. They are themselves drafted into fighting. Uh, Wejker served in the artillery and the Polish campaigns, in the, in the, uh, and then in the Eastern Front during the end of the war. Uh, Helmut Koen was a uh, also an officer. His unit, of course, his uh, reserve unit that he had served with for for uh, for a longer time. Uh, that ended up in Stalingrad. He himself uh, was uh, saved by a last-minute transfer to another unit as a liaison officer. But basically, most of his uh, his own friends from this military group uh, then went into Stalingrad with predictable uh, consequences. And so there is this kind of uh, combination of uh, continuity, tragedy, and uh, seeking of a new purpose. So that when you have these young scholars, so a, for example, uh I think I uh, chose Vierker not only because he's important, but also because Vierker was uh, very close to Fritz Springsheim, who was his teacher. So that we have people who have Basically, being involved in ousting their own teachers and almost killing them. And then they are at the end of the war, they have to reinvent themselves. In the case of Vieker, they, uh, his, uh, Pringsheim wrote a very nice, uh, not truthful, but nice, uh, letter of recommendations for the, uh, denotification process in which he said that Uh, that Wiecker had never been a, you know, real Nazi or anything like that. Uh, And then this allowed him to then uh, gain a semblance of normality and not be excluded like some some Nazi professors had been. But so in the afterwar years, that there is this enormous sense of uh, cataclysm, a seeking of purpose, and in that moment, both the Nazis and the of the former Nazis and the exiles draw on to the some similar tradition, and that tradition is the idea of uh of a rule of law. And of course, in in the case of, for example, Vieker, that his he was a professor in Leipzig, and so it meant that his university was in the Russian uh, Russian occupation zone. He quite quickly decided that he can't stay there. And so he, you know, saw uh, a totalitarian regime also from the the business end of the repressive machinery as well. I would say that uh, one of the the things that uh, really struck me when you talk about the 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 reemergence of uh, Roman law and the ideas of common European tradition, that these ideas were actually... uh, that the roots were already hatched, or you no know, roots are not hatched, but the other uh, that roots emerged already in the 1930s. In the case of uh, the late 30s, is in the case of Korshaker in his his first works, but or also Franz Wiecker, who was a card carrying med- member of the of the Nazi party, that already he. Begins in 1942 to write about a European tradition, so he is uh, preempting this uh, post-war reckoning, and there there is a kind of connection between one Nazi policy or one Nazi propaganda apparatus product uh, called the the New Europe, and that was kind of uh, Nazi propaganda which was directed at the uh, occupied countries and the idea that there would emerge a new Europe, one that would be uh, focused on nationalistic principles, Christianity, uh, traditionalism, and anti-communism, so that there would be a new tradition, one that would uh, be, on the other hand, against communism, on the other hand, against the Anglo-American tradition. what he, Xavier so begins to write, it is something that sort of like fits into the uh, New Europe narrative, but then again doesn't. So that already during the war, he's becoming detached from the Nazi propaganda and begins to uh, develop the first ideas of this, this new narrative.
1: I think now is a good time to sort of talk about um, the last section of your book, um, and and tell us who Reinhard Zimmermann is, um, and why his ideas are so important uh, for post-war Europe.
0: So, Reinhard Zimmermann is a um, professor uh, of law. Both, uh, I think, he is now in Hamburg, but he has been professor in various places in both England and South Africa and Germany. And he is uh, the main propagator of this idea of a European legal tradition and one that encompasses not only continental Europe, but also Britain. So that when the European integration began uh, to gain depth in the 1990s, Reinhard Zimmermann was the one who really began to argue that the it is this legal tradition, this kind of Roman law roots, that one should really use as the foundation of this uh, European legal integration. And what he does there is basically he takes quite a lot of uh, the works of, uh, of course, uh, Paul Korsaker, uh, Franz Vicker, Helmut Coin, and gives it a basically a not only a legal but also political dimension
1: so as a way to wrap up discussion of your book, I'm wondering if you could give our listeners two things uh, that you would really like them to take away from listening to you today and and if they were to go and read your book that would stay with them um after they were done
0: so. The first thing is really to understand that traditions are never really discovered. They are made. Somebody takes a look at history and sees a tradition and then decides to call it a tradition. So in this case that we have the creation of the European tradition that, for example, in the works of Helmut Kohl, that he links the Roman law tradition and the natural law tradition which then is developed into the civil law and the human rights tradition, so that he projects this history to the past, and in that he is making a reinvention of law and its significance. And I think the second thing is really that the uh, uh, the kind of uh, serendipity of these developments. If you look at how the anti-totalitarianist narrative. Was formed. You have first these arguments which were described and uh, developed against Nazi Germany uh, by writers, very different writers, from you know, uh, Frankel, Leo Strauss, Hannah Arendt, and which are then finding a new purpose in the kind of European self-understanding against the Soviet bloc. So that it is this kind of need for a tradition that is really surprising and in that respect there is I think there's a good connection between the the, uh, European uh, legal history and the idea of a European narrative uh, and the connection between the European human rights regime and the uh, the impact that Catholic conservatives had in it and the idea that Catholic conservatives, as Marco Duranti has in his recent book argued, that they wanted to promote these supranational legal uh, norms in order to uh, promote uh, the freedom of religion and therefore natural law, human rights, Roman law, where all these kind of uh, normative regimes that could be used to hold back and tie the uh, the power of the state, uh, the power of the state, which in quite many places had been a threat to religious
1: communities. So before I let you go, we'd like to ask one final question. Uh, now that this book is done, um, what are you working on now? Right now, I've been... Uh,
0: working on two projects. So one project is the kind of uh, idea of republicanism and so the, the Roman or ancient roots of republicanism. So republicanism as in not the kind of American republicanism, but republic as a uh, system of governance. And my second uh, ongoing interest is, of course, the, uh, the re-emergence and new influence of these uh uh, nationalism, uh, xenophobia, uh, basically Nazi era era theories of ethnicity, race, and uh, and community uh, within the alt right movement, and their ideas of the past, and the, their their ideas of of who is a member of community.
1: Well, they sound fascinating, and. Uh no pressure, but when, when they're done and uh, when, when you have books, um, we would love to have you back on the show to talk about them.
0: Thank you very much. I would be very happy to talk about um I have to say that uh, one of the things that um, I need to do now that I've finished with this book, because these are quite dark subjects, is to do some kind of palate cleanser, something with a you know, light-hearted... Uh, history of comedy of something
1: like that <laughs>
0: yeah to get my, my, uh, the Nazis out of out of uh, out of my computer screen for a while <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah and I, I don't blame you there um, yeah it, it can weigh you down after you know spending uh, what seems to be endless amount of hours with these with these very difficult um, and import, but important uh, subjects um, that is
0: actually one thing that
1: uh, merit uh, I've been doing this
0: directing business is also something that is, uh, I don't know how much it is discussed in the US, but I've noticed now here that it is a, you know, also a health and safety issue. We had one of our colleagues who was working on on uh, this uh, violent propaganda, basically uh, making internet memes out of terrorist act- attacks. And we were trying to, you know, Support him because it really seemed to be getting to him. The kind of looking at videos of, of of basically murder and mayhem that it is. It is something that in this line of business, one should really try to try to look at the at the uh, mental health of people who are who you are working
1: with. Yes, it's a it's a good thing for us to remember and to and we probably don't talk about it enough. Um, so, well, I thank you for bringing that up. Because um, it's, it's definitely an under, uh, a neglected topic um, in, in programs and in academic departments. So, um, well, I want to thank Caius for being on the show today. Um, and I want to remind all our listeners the title of the book: um, It's Empire of Law, Nazi Germany, Exile Scholars, and the Battle for the Future of Europe. It's published by Cambridge. Um, and I want to thank everybody for listening today. Um, And we will see you all next time.